this. Thank you um, very much for the great talk. If you guys want to come up while you're coming up for our, we have some um, cases and we would like to take your questions. I think we're going to do the questions, though, to get back to our initial um, pre-questions first, or are we doing the cases first? Cases first. Okay. So we are going to, what we wanted to do here was actually talk about quote unquote real world, so what happens um, in a clinic. And this is gonna be, I think we're starting with um, myeloma. So I'll sit and we're each gonna kind of present our own case and then the point will just be to um, bring out a, a few clinical highlights and difficulties which um, hopefully will resonate with everyone who treats these patients. This uh, is that of a 42-year-old male I saw uh, about two years ago. Um, he was uh, a case of uh, multiple myeloma that was uh, IgG lambda, and at the time of diagnosis, uh, he had about 60% uh, bone marrow plasma cells. Fish testing actually showed hypodiploidy and deletion of 17P, and that was back in October of 2017. His uh, primary physician uh, started him on two si on uh, VRD, which is a triplet of bortezomib, lenalidomide, and dexamethasone, standard of care therapy. Uh, and uh, after two cycles, there was essentially no response. Uh, so the primary hematologist added uh, daratumumab uh, and changed the, the VRD backbone to KRD backbone and K stands for carfilzomib. And he received uh, four cycles of that regimen, and uh, after that induction, he was referred to me, uh, at which time he was in partial remission, and the bone marrow plasma cells were less than 5%. Uh, uh, they were still lambda-restricted. And uh, we performed autologous stem cell transplantation about six months from his time of original diagnosis. And within two and a half weeks, he was back home after Melphalan 200 conditioning. At day 100, the bone marrow biopsy revealed MRD-positive disease at 0.0018%. Uh, and based on some data, which is still controversial, uh, this young patient was uh, subjected to the second planned tandem transplant. Uh, and this happened three months uh, following the first. Uh, he was then put on a proteasome inhibitor-based consolidation and maintenance therapy and uh, day, uh, around day 100, at which time his disease was, uh, he was in MRD negative state, and the PET-CT scan also showed no evidence of disease. A year later, he remains on uh, maintenance therapy and uh, so, uh, again, MRD uh, assessment revealed no evidence of disease, and uh, PET-CT scan was negative as well. So this is a case uh, that I just want to highlight, uh, a high-risk patient um, in whom MRD negative state was uh, achieved um, with uh, obviously two transplants here, uh, but based on, on this uh, result, I cannot take off the patient from uh, 
this PI-based consolidation therapy because there currently there are no data that are available to suggest that uh, based on my MRD status uh, uh, or, or the patient's MRD status, we can change or alter the therapy. Secondly, this patient obviously, because the patient was in MRD negative state, uh, was all obviously glad to know that, uh, and it, it, as I showed uh, in my initial talk, uh, patients with high-risk features, uh, if they've achieved MRD-negative state, their prognosis is much improved, and at least a few studies are now showing that their prognosis is as good as prognosis of standard-risk patients who have achieved MRD-negative state. So I'd like to provoke a fight now, please, um, with you and Ajay, because, so thank God I don't have to treat myeloma, but here I was thinking based on the JAMA article, which I thought was an inspired thing to do, by the way, that was a fantastic slide. I'm thinking, all right, I don't have to worry about this too much because I don't actually need to do anything based on MRD, and now we have a case which is the entire management although you introduced caveats that we are in the data-free zone, is, is based on MRD. So we all get it that there, there are not um, phase three randomized trials for everything that we do or even possibly anything that we do in, in AML. But how do you, so what's your response to the case, uh, Dr. Chari, given, given your uh, comments about how to use MRD? So I think one of the interesting things about we know this patient starts off at high risk with deletion 17 pre, with presumably a high percentage of cells with it. More important, I think, is the functional high risk, which is lack of response to induction therapy to a very potent triplet regimen, which in the vast majority of patients should have resulted in a response. So the writing on the wall is already there, that this patient is, has high risk disease and um, gets induction, then gets actually salvage therapy with DKRD and then um, has the transplant. So I think a couple of things come up. Um, First is we should assume at day 100, because I think in myeloma, as we've said, is MRD positivity can only be thought of in the context of the rest of the disease, right? So we have to assume, and I think this is one of the dangers of MRD getting into the community, is we all know that in clinical trials, when patients come, how many times are community doctors even doing SPEP, IFE, UPEP, urine immunofixation, free light chain? So if you don't even have all of those tests, then do we need the marrow, right? So if this patient had any evidence of positivity in any one of those, you could argue, it doesn't matter what the marrow show, positive or negative, that patient's not in remission and needs more therapy. Um, I think the transplant, second transplant, as you said, is a controversial choice, so we can discuss further if there's interest, but one could argue, I think that the challenge with this um, anecdotal medicine is that you don't know what would have happened to this patient with more time independent of that second transplant, because we know that transplant, the response can deepen even after day 100. So that's one of the challenges of doing MRD testing in all of these diseases we talked about is when you do the test is important. And I think we heard also, right, that if you don't have enough events post-transplant, you may get a suboptimal result and act on that, and that may not be as valuable. So did you get a good sample? Was it uh, representative and was that sustained? And so whether the second transplant is what led to the MRD negativity or would it have deepened anyway? Right, and you could argue, could you have deepened that response with consolidation therapy and or multiple, so daratumumab and lenalidomide um, off-label, uh, and also currently we know that there is, um, the, the IMID maintenance has been quite effective in terms of PFS and OS. So I think some of the things that this case generates is really the, uh, 
the timing of the testing, the sustained, the fact that whether the patient's MRD negative or positive, this patient is functionally high risk. So even if this MRD uh, had been negative, you still would be very aggressive with post-transplant care for this patient. Um, and so that's why it goes back to that question, does the test change your management? And if you were gonna do aggressive consolidation, aggressive multidrug maintenance, does that test tell you the end all and be all? I, th I think, um, you know, it's, it's interesting. Obviously, this young person, high risk features, you're worried right off the bat. And so you're gonna manage this person aggressively with all your tools. But, you know, take a standard risk patient who gets VRD, uh, has a nice clinical response, and you do a bone marrow, and you measure MRD. So what are you supposed to do with that information? It seems to me that what you see a lot of is people manage to MRD. Oh, it's still positive. Uh, you need a transplant then. Uh, or you have a transplant, uh, or you're putting on, on some maintenance, and it's still detectable. Well, let's switch your maintenance to something else. I mean, there's so many drugs for myeloma that everybody piles on and just uses more and more. More therapy is more, is better. Uh, so that's the real confusion for me in how it's being uh, used in, in myeloma. Uh, I would like to point out one thing, uh, that is that in this patient, uh, even before going to the first transplant, the patient had already decided, based on the data that was presented to him, uh, that he would go for a tandem transplant. Now, obviously, if day 100 marrow showed like flor uh, florid progression, then we wouldn't have taken him for a second auto-transplant. But the, the, the key is that the decision to take the patient to second auto-transplant was not based on the MRD positive or negative results. Uh, uh, even if the patient had achieved MRD negative status, uh, which about 50% of patients with multiple myeloma do with current therapy, the kind of therapy that this guy got, um, we uh, would have still taken him for second transplant based on the pros and cons of tandem planned tandem transplant. Uh, the key is that uh, it's important to look at the MRD assessment comprehensively. Uh, you have to look at the imaging as well. And this is one case that highlights uh, sustained MRD negativity, although the patient was very high risk, as uh, AJ pointed out right off the bat. The, the uh, writing was on the wall based on reduced response or suboptimal response to very good triplet, uh, and almost 100% of patients do respond to VRD uh, initial regimen, and this patient did not. So uh, what I also want to highlight is that in spite of the MRD negative results, at the end of the treatment uh, or end of second transplant, the patient went on for consolidation and maintenance, and we should not be making our decisions about uh, subsequent therapy, at least for now in multiple myeloma, uh, based on the MRD results. So can I ask, are there data that address whether requiring two exposures to high-dose chemotherapy to achieve 10 to the minus 5 or lower disease burden has the same prognostic value as achieving that with just one autotransplant? So we don't have that data that I'm aware of. Uh, and um, you can argue both ways. If somebody has achieved MRD uh, negative state, uh, uh, 
uh, with the first transplant itself, whether you really need to go with the second transplant, or if the, if the patient's uh, disease was responsive to high-dose melphalan conditioning, uh, maybe the patient would, would be better off getting some additional therapy. Uh, there is some data with respect to complete remission and whether the patients who have achieved less than complete re remission, whether they should be go undergoing second transplant, and it does, doesn't show that they would be benefiting from second transplant. But at the MRD negative state, MRD level, we don't have that data. I think an interesting point I would add is that this may be relevant for all the diseases. The time point is one issue, but how you got to that disease measurement I think is very important. So for example, there's two studies that looked at the role of tandem transplant, one in Europe, one in the US. The EMN study showed that if you get Cybor-D for a fixed duration followed by transplant, the high-risk patients do benefit from a second transplant. The US version of that study, where patients got induction, transplant, and either got consolidation, um, lend maintenance, or second transplant, there was no difference in the three arms. And I think one of the big differences is what happened to the patients prior to transplant. In the US, if you give two cycles of therapy and you don't get a response, you deepen it with a quad. You can do whatever you want. You can change the number of cycles, deepen the, the response. And when you do all of that pre-transplant, it can mitigate the ability to see differences post-transplant. And I think the other study with uh, Prashant did show at the very beginning is the Forte study, which is already showing that KRD, uh, with or without transplant, at one time point showed comparable rates of MRD negativity. But a year later, the transplant patients had more durable MRD negativity. So again, what happens at this single time point is not the end-all and be-all. Um, and so I think it, it highlights the importance of how you get to MRD negativity, and not all drugs may be created equal. And we haven't even talked about the impact of cost, right? So if you're going to not do transplant, how many drugs do you need to use to sustain that MRD negativity? And what is the cost of that relative to a transplant consolidation? So I think MRD has a real value add there to, to guide our therapy. Can we be more elegant about the number of drugs, the need for transplant, the duration of therapy? But we, we, we really need in myeloma prospective risk-adapted study designs, uh, and we lack that right now in at least resulted studies. I think, it's a, I think it's a terrific case, actually, to bring up because it really highlights, I mean, it's wonderful to have so many effective therapies, but there are hazards. And I would argue that um, certainly as an AML doctor, I am very, very happy to have all of the novel therapies um, available. They are available in the U.S. They're not available in the rest of the world. But it's actually in many ways been inhibitory to clinical trial development on figuring out what to do with them, which is a point that's much discussed. It sounds like in myeloma, too, part of the problem is that you can do a lot of playing with the existing therapies without exactly having a large data set for them. This is a great case. Do, can you guys move to the next slide, or shall I jump up and? Uh, thank you. Okay, so let's um, uh, let's talk about uh, about this case for a second to stay on the topic. So, this is another case of myeloma of a 72-year-old male with uh, IgA lambda translocation 1114. Revised ISS stage two multiple myeloma. Uh, the patient had about 90% uh, plasma cells in the marrow at the time of diagnosis, and uh, these were lambda restricted. And as you can see, the patient uh, back in 2013 at the time of diagnosis uh, had received uh, um, uh, a triplet of Cybor D, cyclophosphamide, bortezomib, and dexamethasone 
Following that induction, the patient underwent uh, autologous stem cell transplant. Uh, and around day 100, there was a slight increase in his IgA levels, uh, and he was uh, started on VRD-based consolidation slash maintenance. There, the patient didn't quite meet the criteria of biochemical progression. Um, ultimately, about uh, a year and a half later, the patient's disease progressed, uh, and uh, he was started on triplet of daratumumab, pomalidomide, dexamethasone, which did control his disease for a period of time. And uh, again, the patient... Uh, uh, about a year and a half later, uh, relapsed. He was treated with another triplet of uh, exasimib, thalidomide, and dexamethasone. Uh, unfortunately, he didn't quite respond to that, and at that time, um, he was treated with metronomic therapy of just cyclophosphamide alone. And ultimately, as you can see, there was some recycling of drugs. Um, he had already previously received exasimib and uh, pomalidomide, but had not received it in this combination. It uh, brought his uh, IgA levels down somewhat, and uh, at that time we had another trial with BCL2 inhibitor, venetoclax, and uh, uh, based on the data that uh, it particularly benefits patients who have uh, translocation 1114, we decided to give him venetoclax on a clinical trial. And um, he uh, attained a deep response, uh, uh, but the response wasn't uh, very long-lived, at least uh, from myeloma standpoint. Uh, and a year after um, starting on venetoclax therapy, his disease relapsed again. At that point, he was started on anti-BCMA antibody drug conjugate uh, called belantamab mafodotin, again uh, through a clinical trial, DREAM2 study, and uh, he rapidly achieved uh, MRD-negative state by Euroflow uh, within uh, three cycles of initiating this therapy. I think this case brings up uh, several really interesting points, first of which you see this um, diminishing returns, as I alluded to, right? As you're getting to these relapses, you're barely getting a response, and if it works, it's barely responding. And now, with a, a novel anti-BCMA conjugated to orostatin, which is a microtubule inhibitor, you're getting a dramatic, unprecedented depth of response for this patient. So really highlighting the role of MRD. However, I would say that the role of MRD in this setting is almost zero, because you know the, the whole point of MRD is it should be a surrogate endpoint for something that you can't normally see. And guess what? In this patient population, PFS declares itself, let alone OS. So why do you need to use an MRD, a surrogate endpoint? So in the heavily treated population, I don't know that there's a role for MRD other than just to show that the depth of response. But we saw that even with CAR-T, yes, MRD patients have a better PFS, but they still relapse. And so at the end of the day, for a heavily treated, multi-drug refractory patient, nothing will trump PFS. Well, you can see, I mean, the penultimate treatment here, right? You are MRD negative. And it, it, yeah, it but the follow-up is still it, short. It lasted for right. a minute. Right. I mean, but for venetoclax, right. even before the right. last one. I mean, I think a couple of things just to highlight here, too, that um, we are, we're not done with clinical trials in these areas, right? There's plenty of room for that. And I do think that there's a temptation, um, and we all do this when there are available drugs, as you pointed out, the recycling of drug issue, right? So that happens mostly if somebody can't get onto a trial or maybe it's not open. You've got to do something. You've got to control things temporarily. But, I mean, these are patients.
reasons, clearly, who we just want to sort of be strongly as a panel, I think, advocating for, um, for clinical trials, especially since um, it, the, the order in which the therapies are ultimately delivered might matter enormously, I would think, for these patients. And maybe you want to move something up more uh, to frontline therapy so that you don't have to have, this This guy started treatment in 2013 and the end of the graph is in um, 2019 and I gather he's still doing well, which is absolutely fantastic six years of therapy, but it's still six years of an awful lot of therapy. I think another important point um, in terms of the high importance of clinical trials is this venetoclax story, which uh, some of you may know. This is bortezomib dex plus or minus venetoclax was a randomized study to phase three Bellini. This may have been single agent, but that's a very illustrative study because it showed that the response rate was better with the addition of venetoclax. It showed that the PFS was better, but there was a worsening of median OS. So it, it highlights the the hesitation we should have with jumping full force into surrogate endpoints without using the standard full body of the literature because in that study, the patients who uh, we think it's patients who didn't have 1114, patients who had low BCL2 expression or high-risk cytogenetics, those three subgroups had worse outcomes. Mm -hmm. And so even though you may get better MRD, better PFS, we cannot stop looking at OS and toxicity concerns. So we love myeloma, but we're going to move on to, um, if I could ask for the next slide, please. So ALL. Okay, so um, here we have a 34-year-old male who presents with uh, leukocytosis, 39,000, and otherwise pancytopenic, has 60% blasts in the peripheral blood, bone marrow biopsy, shows an immunophenotype uh, consistent with pre-B cell ALL, which is CD20 positive. Uh, his cytogenetics show no evidence of the Philadelphia chromosome, uh, so he has pH negative B-cell ALL. Um, extended molecular profiling shows an IGH CRLF2 translocation, which is uh, definable as a pH-like lesion. So this gentleman is 34. He receives therapy on an AYA regimen, the CLGBCOG10403 regimen that was just published this year by Wendy Stock and uh, achieves a hematologic remission after the first block of induction therapy. And so the question I have for the audience is at what time point should this patient be tested for MRD using whichever technology you have available to you, be it multi-parameter flow cytometry or next generation sequencing? If we can move to the next slide. So should this patient be tested at the end of induction, uh, at the uh, conclusion or during consolidation? Um, this patient does have a high-risk lesion, pH-like. I think most of us would want to take this patient to an allogeneic transplant if we can find a suitable donor and if, they're, uh, if they have the social support to do so. If they're going to tra uh, transplant, should you check prior to transplant? Is there a role for testing MRD after transplant, or should we test all of the above? Um, I think you have to answer it. We don't have the yeah, audience the response right. system <laughs> set up for this. So I, I gave you this softball basically because I want everyone to take home the very simple message that it's important if you take care of ALL patients to set up a method for testing MRD. If flow cytometry, 
is available to you in your own center and your hematopathologists have validated their approach for quantifying disease to 0.01% or lower, then do that. If you don't have in-house flow cytometry-based MRD of that quality, find a vendor who can do it for you. If you don't want to do flow cytometry, there is the FDA-approved Clonaseq assay, which I use personally on all of my ALL patients and have found to be abundantly helpful um, because of the depth of sensitivity and the other data that come along with it. But it's very important to pick a test, even if you just see one ALL patient per year, because it is really important for the management of your patients. The other point I wanted to make is, as was shown by the German GMOL study, in ALL, MRD is useful wherever you are in the course of the patient's therapy. After every single cycle of therapy, you could, in theory, test the bone marrow for MRD. Um, I think there's a tremendous amount of provider and, more importantly, patient aversion to that many bone marrow biopsies. And so, no, we're probably not going to do a bone marrow biopsy every single month in all of our ALL patients. But at the very minimum, you do have to test after induction because if the patient has MRD above the level of 10 to the minus 4, we already know that they have a fraction of their disease that is refractory to chemotherapy. And you should be starting to think at that time point, even though it's just one month into therapy, about finding a donor for that patient, uh, making sure that they stay on schedule for their next cycle of consolidation chemotherapy, trying not to allow for windows of you know, breaks for whatever reason in therapy because that patient will relapse rapidly. As they proceed through their consolidation, you want to continue to test MRD. If they were positive and they become negative, you will need to make a judgment. Is that uh, acquisition of MRD negativity at, at least at the level of 10 minus 4 after two or three cycles enough? Would you not do a transplant at that point? Um, we don't really have strong data to guide decision-making in the setting of a conversion from MRD positivity after induction to MRD negativity, other than a few studies that are controversial. Some show that the acquisition of MRD negativity after two or three cycles is the same as achieving it after induction. There are other studies that show that those patients who take longer to acquire MRD negativity actually do worse. And I think that the reason there's that ambiguity in the literature is those studies have not reported the genotypes associated with those patients. And I do think that there's an interplay between the genotype and the MRD. And so in a patient who has a pH-like lesion who achieves MRD negativity even after induction, but certainly if they're MRD positive after induction become MRD negative, I'm still really worried about that patient because I know that they have a high risk of relapse even with the achievement of MRD negativity. And so there is a role for continuing to assess MRD, and the NCCN guidelines have settled upon recommending getting MRD every two to three months as patients are proceeding through their consolidations and if you're on a regimen that has intensifications through that as well. When you take a patient to transplant, if they have B-cell ALL, I think it's absolutely critical that you should test MRD prior to transplant. As I mentioned, we have lenitumumab that has a provisional approval by the FDA for treatment of MRD-positive B-cell ALL. Uh, the label does specify the disease burden has to be greater than 0.1%. Um, I think sometimes it is used with lower disease burdens on an off-label basis. Um, we don't yet know whether that is the right thing to do. 
Um, but we do know that patients from other studies, we do know from that patients who go to uh, transplant with disease burdens as low as 10 to the minus four, or even lower, may have an impaired outcome after allotransplant. One of the reasons the blenitumumab uh, label modification was provisional is because 75% of the patients on the BLAST study received an allogeneic transplant. And so the uh, ODAC at the FDA felt that you couldn't necessarily state that blenitumumab was responsible for all the benefit. And so there's the EHOG 1910 study, which is ongoing, which is going to address this question in a randomized fashion because patients who are MRD negative or positive will both be exposed to blenitumumab and ultimately we will be able to decipher whether blenitumumab has a benefit um, with or without an allogeneic transplant. Okay, so just to torture you a little bit, so Wendy presented somewhere the data that the um, 10403 MRD negative patients have really good survival. 85%. I mean, really yeah. good. Mm -hmm. So you have a CRLF2 here. Let's say that this patient is MRD negative by whatever you want, clonacy plus less flow, but mm -hmm. he's got a pH-like signature. Two months later, you check it. Two months later, you check it again. Worry is nice, but are you actually going to take him into a transplant, given that the transplant data, the allotransplant data for ALL is not even getting to that 80-something percent number because of, um, because of TRM? Yeah. So are you going to worry but not transplant him, or are you going to worry and transplant him? Yeah, I think this is very controversial, um, and there are likely different decisions that would be made by different providers. Um, at our center, our practice is to allograph to all patients with pH-like lesions, even those who achieve MRD negativity. Um, that said, if there are major barriers to proceeding with transplants, such as social barriers, um, you know, maybe we don't push as hard to get to the allograft in those patients if they've achieved MRD negativity irrespective of their genotype. Um, but I have had patients who have pH-like lesions or certainly other high-risk lesions who achieve MRD negativity and still relapse. As you yourself pointed out, MRD negativity is not a cure. It is simply our best assessment of disease burden potentially down to one cell out of 10,000 or one cell out of a million. But even below that threshold, there may be cells that can ultimately relapse. And I think that the patients who are likely to do that are the, are the ones that have the high-risk lesions. Just to close out that discussion, so we have here myeloma, CLL, AML. We have MRD as prognostic. Here, though, this is the closest thing we have right to an actual surrogate endpoint. Now, surrogacy is a whole different story, and we can discuss, or not in the current session, what is actually required for surrogacy as a definition from a regulatory endpoint. You have to show that it is your intervention with a new therapy that is resulting in the overall survival benefit. That's not the same thing as something as prognostic, but I would say that here, in, in the rest of the discussions, we've had lots of questions about when, how, a we have to get this right. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. And I think it's become more complicated because of the higher sensitivity that we have with clonoseq. And, I, you know, I have a lot of patients that have 10 to the minus 5 disease burden after induction or after consolidation. And I actually don't know what to do with those patients. I don't necessarily know, should that patient be transplanted? Should that patient receive blenitumumab prior to transplant? Should I just continue to treat them with chemotherapy? 
because we don't have data that have looked with that depth of response to, to help with you know, validating that level of response as a predictor. It's all based largely on the threshold of 10 to the minus four, and some of the studies were even just 10 to the minus three. And the super final point is that this doesn't touch on the controversy of BFM or asparaginase-based regimens for the younger patients versus hyper-CVAD type of regimens, mm -hmm. which have often been used for, um, for older adults, but we're not even going to go there because yeah. I want to get we'll quickly get to the next here. couple of cases and we will have an all-nighter otherwise. Uh, next slide, please. Okay, so this, um, so this is mine. This is the case that I talked about. So it's a 55-year-old with FLIP3-ITD and NPM1, um, gets standard uh, 7 and 3, and at the end of treatment, I'm trying to figure out what to do with the patient. The patient clearly has a morphologic CR, but what else do I want here? And I guess my point here was to try to drive home that... Um, Every single thing that you can measure in AML doesn't need to be at the number zero before you, um, you know, figure out what to do. So this would be a patient um, typically who is referred um, for allogeneic stem cell transplant with a FLT3 ITD. She's gotten standard therapy with a FLT3 um, inhibitor combined with chemotherapy. But the question is that... Um, is there, you know, I've emphasized over and over again the importance of NPM1 mutation um, uh, uh, as, a, as a specific one that is a molecularly defined disease and requires um, post-treatment and post-consolidation uh, monitoring. So what do we do about that in this context? And it's, you know, if we have detectable NPM1 after um, induction, that would be expected here, and that is not something that should derail a stem cell transplant. Do we look at it? I mean, we do. In research settings, one does. Could you look at it again after your, let's say you have one cycle of consolidation because you're trying to organize your donor and get the transplant scheduled and let's say the NPM1 is going in the right direction. So might that be encouraging that it is a sensitive disease that is going to respond well to allo? Maybe, but we don't really have those data. So if you have a, a transplant-eligible patient in an AML population that we still think that transplant is the right way to go, that's what you're looking for. If I hadn't been talking about a FLT3 ITD in this scenario, so I just want to bring up, for example, that in older patients, the um, prognostic impact of FLT3 is actually less clear. Things like allele burden are sometimes not even provided to the doctors, and yet allele burden results in a separation in terms of ELN um, category. But sometimes there are uh, quite a few, actually, of older patients who are NPM1 mutated who have a very low allele burden FLT3. Whether or not you want to or are able to dabble in a FLT3 inhibitor for therapy is one thing, but again, from an MRD monitoring perspective, Perspective, you are looking for NPM1 by PCR in post-remission therapy for people who you are trying to decide. You're on the fence. You're not exactly sure what to do for those patients with potentially curative therapy and transplant. And the only thing I can say is that it's particularly complicated when you have the NPM1 with multiple other mutations, but in a lot of the world, most of it at this point, even if you have NPM1 concomitantly with a, a lot of other mutations other than FLT3, if you are following the PCR levels and they're going in the right direction, there is not a... Uh, 
complete necessity to transplant that patient. It's not the wrong thing to do, but it does, it does still fall into the ELN favorable, which is not an automatic allotransplant. Yeah, I was going to ask if this patient had a low allelic ratio, whether you would have a different approach to them yeah. if they had a high allelic ratio for the foot 3 ITD. Yeah, so some do. I mean, I think in the U.S. there's definitely a bias that this patient with a foot 3 ITD who is 55 is, is mm -hmm. going to get an allotransplant. Um, could one make the argument that somebody like that might do okay? Yes, but you're very nervous. If that patient had a very high risk um, uh, for whatever reason for transplant, you could still say to the patient that it is not absolutely impossible that they would that they would do well and you can monitor other things but monitoring something doesn't mean you're making it better and that's the other thing that also for some of the NPM1 um, mutation patients is that some of those patients many of those patients will relapse I mean we're still always talking 50-50 kind of thing but if you are relapsing with AML two years down the road, well, that means you haven't died by accident early with a transplant-related disaster, and there might be other therapies or other improvements even in transplantation that could benefit you if you um, are alive longer. So I think that's where the subtleties come in with, um, with NPM1 disease. And I want to make if, sure... If they were NPM1 negative, would you, and had a low allelic ratio for foot three, would you uh, not do the transplant? No, I would do it. You would do it. Yeah. I mean, again, not if they're 80, but mm -hmm. if, if we're talking a 55-year-old, I think that I'm, I would still be thinking mm -hmm. that that is going to be the best therapy. Now, the question, I think, is, you know, for, for those patients, again, are you still on... Because, you know, the patients are imagining that transplant is one and done, right? That's your curative therapy. You're finished now. Well, not actually, because what if you need a FLT3 inhibitor forever afterwards? And which FLT3 inhibitor? So even then, the concept of transplant sort of finishing the problem and you're done is getting a little bit a little bit dicier with, with post-transplant options being available. But I do still think that FLT3-mutated, FLT3-ITD-mutated patients, even the TKDs, I think, are more, comp uh, more yeah. complicated, and we may not want to get into that now. But for ITD mutants, I think that if you have a good transplant option, that's what you should do. And you put everyone on a FLT3 inhibitor post-transplant, irrespective of their MRD status going in? Um, so, well, we're on video um, for... <laughs> the world to see, and there's a lot of off-label land that is in that question. Um, my, uh, there, we are in the data-free zone, but yes, I do put patients, um, I want FLT3 mutated patients who are able to be on a FLT3 inhibitor post-transplant um, to be, I, I want them to get that. If you ask me which one, I won't answer. Yeah. Okay, next uh, slide, please. Yes, Sephora. And randomizing patients between post-transplant foot three inhibitor or not, and we do participate in that trial. It, it's a challenging question for that, for that and many other reasons, because again, the, the right thing is to do that trial and to figure out the answer to the question, but I think in the land of available drugs and some available data, sometimes it's challenging. Yeah, it's become it's, very complicated. I keep using the word challenging the, over and over again. After the release of the Stormain trial data with yeah, Strafinib, exactly. it's become very complicated. Because there, I mean, there are survival data that have been released. Okay, so let's just um, hit uh, Steve's case. Oh, so this was just the question that, that we had. Undetectable MRD, 
uh, is a strong predictor of PFS with all but which of the following therapies for CLL. So as we discussed, certainly with chemoimmunotherapy, FCR and BR, it's probably the strongest factor associated with PFS rather than traditional response rate. And also with uh, some of our novel agents, particularly venetoclax or venetoclax combinations, and even with chlorambicil and obinutuzumab uh, because of the uh, effect of obinutuzumab on being able to achieve undetectable MRD in, in some patients. So really the, um, the only one that isn't is ibrutinib, really, because you get uh, tremendous, uh, tremendously long PFS uh, when used as a single agent up front without uh, necessarily achieving undetectable MRD. Right, you don't need to achieve that low level of disease burden. But I think, you know, the, the problem with the treatment forever approach is it's obviously very costly. So what's your opinion about the importance of moving to defined periods of therapy with combination drugs? Well, that's a, co that's a complicated question. Certainly the efforts of most trials now are looking at combinations, uh, no chemotherapy, and asking the question about time-limited therapy, whether it's uh, venetoclax or venetuzumab or ibrutinib venetoclax uh, or whatever combinations. Um, and I think, you know, it's, it'll be interesting. I, I think that at the end of the day, there isn't going to be one answer. I think we're going to have data. We're going to know that patients on single agent ibrutinib do well for many years. And with time-limited combinations like venetoclax or venetuzumab, which is now approved in the U.S., uh, we'll find out how long a benefit you get after one year of venetoclax. And then you make a value judgment. So let's say you get four years off therapy. So one patient will say, well, I'll take that pill once a day, and, you know, go on with things. And the other patient will say, well, I like this idea. I'm just going to have it for a year, and if I get four or five years out of it, that, that's good. So if you do a randomized trial compared to the two, it wouldn't surprise me at all if PFS is longer with ibrutinib. But that doesn't mean it's better, unlike most of our trials, right? It just means it's different. So we'll be in, a, I think, a great position to have information to choose what fits you best. So now that Venobi has been FDA approved, would you use MRD at one year to potentially continue the venetoclax if they remain MRD positive above the level of 10 to the minus 4? Or? No, absolutely not. Not in clinical practice. Again, that gets to the issue of what, what does that mean? So does that mean if they're positive, we know they're going to progress sooner. We've, uh, but does that mean you should continue therapy or add therapy? Are you driving them to MRD negative? Let's say you achieve that. Then, then show me that that outcome with that patient is any different than the patient who was MRD positive, you did nothing about until they had clinical progression and they treated them. So it's, you know, it, it's not acute leukemia where you're going to die if you manage a patient that way. Uh, we have the luxury of, of uh, not having to worry about that, that event. So... Uh, We'll see. I think we'll find out mostly with longer follow-up from time-limited therapies, MRD-directed clinical trials, for example, and then uh, we'll be in a good position to decide for an individual patient what fits them. You also alluded to an important issue, I think, which goes <clears throat> across all the malignancies, which is if you attain MRD neg negativity and now you relapse, 
what do you do with that, right? Because the, we already know in myeloma, if you go from um, IFE negative to positive, that could precede clinical symptoms by a long time. Yes. And so you were alluding to treating at a clinical relapse. I think that applies to all the other than AML. But if you have a long, uh, you know, period when before, whether you're MRD negative to positive or whatever other biologic test you're using, when do you intervene? Yeah, no, I think that um, it certainly, it matters a lot, right, if you're talking about uh, the potential to intervene on something which would putter for months and so forth. Certainly in, in um, AML land, you might have, by the time you've repeated the PCR to make sure that it's right, you might already not need that test. Right. So the time scales for all of these things are very different.